0: Welcome to Words of Wisdom. On this podcast, we interview some of the most influential people in the world to uncover how they became the best so that we can help you understand how you can become the best. What's up, everybody? Grant Wise here. Welcome to Words of Wisdom. I am beyond excited for my interview today. I've got Mr. Long Doan, who is a broker out of Minnesota, has one of the most incredible stories you've ever heard. And I'm excited to step right into this interview and listen to him tell it. Long, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, brother.
1: Thanks for having me. Always love hanging out with you, bud.
0: Uh I'm excited. Well, let's dive into this. Let's get right into your story, and uh, I know it's 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 intense, but I I know that people are going to take away a lot away from it. So, tell us kind of how you got started.
1: Yeah, so uh, me personally, um, this is my 29th year in the business. My first 15 years on the mortgage side, my last 14 in real estate. But we want to really go back a little further. I'm originally from Vietnam. And uh, my mom and dad actually got both got a uh, scholarship to Florida State University from Vietnam. My dad came back with a PhD. My mom came back with a master's degree. And uh, in uh, 2000, I'm sorry, 1975, when the American pulled out of the Vietnam War, as most of us know from learning through history, uh, what happened is in the communist countries such as Vietnam back at that time, they have this thing called reeducation camp. So anyone who can think for themselves is a threat, right? Because this is government control. Anything you're against a communist, unlike America here, you know, you're going to go to prison if you don't agree with the government. So they arrest anyone who can think for themselves, such as uh, poets, doctors, professors, you know, my dad was a professor. So I was eight years old. My two younger brothers were four and two. Uh, he was arrested to a re-education camp. I did not see him again until I was 32 years old. So, Um, You know, he was in prison for about 22 years during that time. So uh, from the age of about 8 to 13, um, I uh, was kind of the man of the house. Uh, My mom would go to work, uh, you know, two jobs every day. She was a teacher herself. And back in Vietnam during this time, uh, it was considered to be the rationed period of the Vietnam history. So everything is rationed to you. That's how the communist government controlled the people through economy. So it doesn't matter if you make money, you make lots of money, little money, you can't go buy anything, right? You get rationed everything. So if you work for the government, which everybody do, uh, they would ration you everything based on your headcount and your family. So for me, after school, every day, I would go line up in a big, long line on behalf of my family to get our rationed. So on Monday, we get a ration of rice. On Tuesday, it might be detergent. On Wednesday might be, you know, spices, uh, you know, Thursday might be protein. Whatever it is, I will stand in line, the hot heat, humidity of Vietnam, two to three hours sometime just to get the ration of stuff for our family so we can live while my mom's out there working two, two days, you know, two, two jobs a day. So it was pretty bad to the point where uh, education and future is important to my parents because obviously they themselves are professors, right, PhD and master. So they want me to have a better life. And during this time in the 19, early 1980s, between 1975 and 1980, uh, a lot of people left Vietnam for a better life. Matter of fact, about 2 million people. And Vietnam's a coastal country. So a lot of people left by boat, which as you probably know through history, we were called the boat people. And I was one of those. It was actually my third try before uh, I made it. And back then essentially it's, it's uh, human stuff, smuggling. So these river fishing boat grant, they would build secret compartment underneath, and they would smuggle people down there. And in uh, in Asia, there's this big river called the Mekong River that actually feeds through a couple of v- uh, uh, Asian countries, including Vietnam. It would feed into the ocean. Okay. So what we would do is we would get onto this river fishing boat, and we go underneath, and we would you know fish through the checkpoint until we get out there. So for me, that was my third try. So I remember it was a uh, a weeknight. And I remember both my younger brothers went to my cousin for a sleepover, which was unusual. And if I was smarter like I am now and more aware of my environment, I would have figured this stuff out. I didn't think of it, right? Hey, school night, especially in Vietnam, I mean, no, you don't get to go sleepover on a school night, okay? So I should have figured that out. And then my grandma, because uh, my dad was the oldest there. So my, back then, the culture is the grandparents would live with you because they would take care of their parents, right? So my grandparents lived with us. So my grandma, I, I remember maybe my favorite meal, which was barbecue pork. I remember I didn't have to fight my brother for, you know, protein, because back then you would get probably half an ounce of a protein that you would eat almost like the whole family. We would split it up, very heavily salted to eat with your rice, right? So I remember I'm like, ah, this is awesome. I'm not fighting my brothers. I get my own, you know, and then, uh, and then it was that night, um, both my grandma and my mom spent time with me before I went to bed, which was unusual because in the Asian country, we don't show a lot of uh, affection. That's just the way the culture works, right? Even though family is very important, but you, you don't show a lot of, you know, affection like we do here. So I thought it was kind of, you know, cool that both my grandma and my mom was kind of there hanging out with me. Now, remember, they can't tell me. I know I was going to try again because we failed the first two times. They can't tell me when it's happening because I'm thirteen. At the time, I would tell my brothers, my friend about it, right? And it, it, as people would know about it because there's supposed to be a secret operation. So I remember then that day, it was dark out. And I found out later it was about three o'clock or something in the morning. My mom woke me up and she told me it was, it was go time. That's when I figured out, oh, yeah, it's time to go. So um, bicycle, my mom on a bicycle, I was stood in the back. She would roll like an hour, um, you know, out of Saigon I actually live in Saigon, so, you know, most Vietnam Vietnam War movie, you see all this rice paddy, which was most of Vietnam was that way. I didn't know a lot about it because I lived in Saigon, you know. So uh, she took me out about an hour ride to meet some men I've never met before. Uh, it was a man that kind of the handoff. So she, before we left, my grandma my, told me she's proud of me, you know, and then my mom handed me off. She said she's proud of me, be brave. Now, at the time, this is my third try. Okay, remember, twice now, I, I, I came back. So I'm thinking, all right, mom, I'll see you in a couple of days, right? All this stuff hasn't hit me yet. So the man took me to a meeting point another hour away. Now I'm like rice paddy area, right? So I remember meeting up. And how it works is you meet in smaller groups. So I showed up. There was eight people in my group. I was the last one. And I was 13 grand back then, really small. Right, um, you know, right now I'm 5'9", 175 pounds, you know, normal for American, but I'm big for, for most Asian men. Okay? But back then I was really little. So I remember meeting up, it was still dark out, and we would walk through the rice paddy to get to, you guys would call the dinghy. But it's a smaller boat. So I remember trying to keep up with the big group. I'm little, tiny, you know, the, the, the mud was up to probably my stomach, maybe my chest in some spot. I'm thinking, man, I, I might have made through some of this spot. And I'm trying to keep up with the whole group. Nobody knows me. I don't know anybody. Uh, so we did that for a little bit until we get to a little small boat. We got on, and they took us down the river to the big boat, okay? So the big boat is not even that big. It's just a river fishing boat. So what happened is we were kind of the last group to arrive. It start to get laid out now. And I remember going down and going, God, there's a lot of people down here. But I was used to it because it, I have gone through this the last time. So what happened then, we get down there all cramped in. So um, if I can look around and show you, even my office is pretty decent sized office, probably 15 by 12, but imagine about uh, maybe a couple office space, 10 by 10, maybe three of those. Imagine 153 people cramped down there, okay? We sat shoulder to shoulders um, down there. So what happened then is you would fish down the Mekong River and every time you get past a checkpoint, with the Coast Guard, we would hear the knock-knock on the top, essentially telling you, all right, everybody got to be super quiet because this is the early 80s when the Vietnam was at war with the Chinese. And if you're 16 or older as a male, if you get caught, your death sentence would be, they would send you to the front line and let you run around to someone shoot you because they don't even want to waste a bullet on you. Okay, so that was your death sentence. Of course, we have older men on the boat. And if you get caught, you'd be screwed, okay? So it was literally been told, especially there's some smaller kids, younger than me that people brought their family with is that if they make noise, you muzzle the kid, kid die, we gotta, we gotta do it. because We gotta protect the rest of people, right? Mm-hmm. So the last time I got caught, we went through the same checkpoint and they took our money because was very corrupt back then. And they still turned us in. That's what happened to me the last time, okay? So this time we got lucky, we made it all the way out. And by the time we get out to international water, This is what you see in movies and books, like pictures of hundreds of people on top of a fishing boat. That's what happened. We all get to go on top. Okay. So I remember we finally made it out there and everyone was going on top and I was taught to be pretty polite back then. I helped everybody. So I wanted the last few to come on board on the top grant. And I didn't know this until later, by the way, but down underneath, I felt like it was an eternity. Apparently it's only three days, but three long days. Okay, Now, imagine you down there, shoulder to shoulder, sitting around, barely no food, little water pass around, rough water, right? People go number one, people go number two, people thrown up everywhere. So if you're ever outside and use one of those satellites, be at a, at a concert, camping, sporting event, go in there and imagine one has been cleaned in a long, long time mm. with no air circulation and you stayed in there for three days in the dark. That's what it was like for me, right? So I remember when I got up on top, right away, I had this feeling like, oh my God, this is so awesome. That's fresh air that you take for granted. Literally, I tell people, I felt like I went from hell to heaven, you know? I went up there and I, I can take this deep breath and, and thought it was amazing. And I was 13, all excited. And I remember looking around and all of a sudden, I saw everyone actually just really scared and quiet. And all of a sudden it hit me. It, I, I remembered stories that if I made it this far, And I didn't before, this is my first time. If you made it out into national water, that's a point of no return. This is where you get the less than 50% chance of of, of surviving because you're out there now. If you get caught, you get to go home, right? Like I did the last time. So this is during the the early 80s Grant when the economy was also really tough back then. You know, you and I are not old enough to remember but people always remind us back then in the 80s that also bad all around the world. And all of the um, surrounding fishermen turned pirates. Because when we leave from Vietnam, the money, the papers printed on in Vietnam. It doesn't even worth the money. It's printed on, right? So people converted them to jewelry, gold, and they take it with them. So surrounding fishermen turned pirates know this. So they would find this uh, defenseless river fishing boat. We can't outrun the ocean boat, right? Little tiny river fishing boat. It would find us. They would come on board, take all the, the gold, the jewelry. their pirate. Take all the food, water, whatever's in there. Rape the women, usually. And they would sink the boat. And sinking the boat was mercy killing. Because otherwise, you would float until you die, right? That's even worse. So luckily for me, we did not run across anything. But people were scared because they know that that was the time, right? So for us, I found out later, because a lot of story been told to me later when we made it, that we had one day left of water, food, and gas. So we got lucky, we ran into the good guy, not one of those pirates, although I did see floating bodies at a 13-year-old, which means something had happened recently nearby, right, just wasn't us. So they called to the New York refugee camp. What happened was just a, uh, a shipping ship that just happened to pass by. That's the escape plan, by the way. If you made it out to international water, you float until someone, you know, picked you up, that is a good guy, called to the nearest refugee camp because during that time, Red Cross had set up refugee camps in the surrounding country, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, right? So where we were, uh, we were closer to Malaysia. So they called to the nearest refugee camp in Malaysia, which is called Bidong. So Bidong is in Wikipedia page, Grant, nicknamed back then as Hell Island. It was considered to be the most heavily populated place on earth. I was one of 40,000 people in the size of a football field. OK, so my first night I got there, uh, they check us in, go through the stuff. We got a shot. Uh, we, dec- we give them the information and we declare or apply for what country we want to go to. So for me, it was America. My uncle, who's my dad's brother, lived in Minnesota. That's how I ended up here. So I, I declare him as my sponsor. Now, because I was an orphan, I was only there for eight months and I had a sponsor. I know many people there, my friends who I hung out with that eight months, who were there for four to five years They declared the country they want to go to, but they didn't have family, so they had to wait for a nonprofit or church to sponsor them right before they get out of it. So this next part I'll share with you, my first night there. Okay. It finally hit me when people went to bed. You know, it was crowded. I didn't know anybody, but I did find a, a, a spot on the beach that wasn't very crowded. And I remember that was the first night I remember, Grant, that I actually cried all night. Okay. It's the first time I actually emotionally cried. Right. I've been I've been hurt in the past because it it finally hit me that I actually made it. And I remember struggling that whole night thinking to myself, wait a minute, that's great. I made it. But am I lucky or or am I unlucky? Right. Everybody I know is on the other side of the ocean. I'll probably never see him again. And I already know that if I made it this far, my job was to figure out a way to take care of myself, which I will have to. I don't know anybody here. Apparently, there's 40,000 people here. I don't know. And I, and I figure what's next. And then I got to figure out how to take care of my family back there. I mean, we all have kids. You know, I have kids. I mean, 13-year-old boy, that's a lot of pressure, right? So I'm thinking, well, dang it. Am I lucky or am I unlucky? You know, am I lucky I made it or am I unlucky that now that I'm here, this is what's happening? So I remember struggling all night. And then the sun was starting to come up. I can hear people start to get up, right? So I remember at that point, I had to make a decision. And this whole story I'm telling you has to do with what we're talking about today. It's about the mindset. And I did not know at that time until I was in my 30s, when I think back, that at that point, I made a decision about my mindset I didn't realize would would shape me or who I am for the rest of my life,
0: right? I
1: remember that point telling myself, put your big boy pants on and go figure it out. You are lucky. Instead of being unlucky, I, I decided I was lucky, right? You are the victor. I could have had the victim mentality for the rest of my life. I was a refugee boy, 13 years old by myself. What am I supposed to do, right? Make all kinds of excuses, but I didn't at that time. So I remember made that decision. Because of that now, you, and you know, like you, I'm out there always looking for opportunity to help other people. I love giving it back and paying it forward because I never want anyone to feel the way I felt that night. That's when I figure out my why later on. That was my why moment, right? They say most of us should have a purpose and a why. And most of the time... It's shaped during the age of eight and 15. And sometimes it's in one specific event or sometimes it's during a a, a, a period of your life. And that was me that during the period of that life of mine and that specific event on the beach that night. I never want anyone, Grant, to feel the way I felt that night. Hmm. Hopeless, helpless. I have no idea what's going to happen next. You know, like I, I have no idea. And I never want anyone to feel that way, which for me later on, I realized, how mindset really affected us, right? So then fast forward, I was there for eight months, camp life was crazy. By the way, the next night is my first night I actually slept, right? And I remember waking up, man, because remember, this is very dirty environment. I remember waking up to rats the size of my puppy dog right now. I mean, it was pretty scary for me, you know, (laughs) because it's very dirty there. Uh, My brother, luckily, by the way, so eight months later, I ended up in Minnesota with my uncle, my younger brother, Believe it or not, made the, the same trip two years later and made it, which was really lucky. He ended up in, in Indonesia. So his story was different. There, he had no rats because you have a lot of snakes. So the snakes had all the rats, right? So you <laughs> got snakes and you got rats. <laughs> so uh, uh, we fast forward. Uh, when he came to America, I lived with my aunt and uncle as well in Minnesota. When I was 18 years old, I moved out, uh, put him through high school. He was in eighth grade at the time, all the way through high school. I worked three jobs put myself to college university of Minnesota. I got out, I got into the mortgage industry 15 years, 14 years later ago, I I got into real estate. I started realtor group in 2009. I have a business partner here, Mike Bernier. You met him and talked to him before. Um, We now have about uh, as of today, 654 on our roster. So one of the fastest growing real estate company in Minnesota. And I attribute most of this stuff to mindset.
0: Man. And you had to have developed an incredible mindset throughout that journey. Did you ever, because I I heard you say, I would figure out later in life, that was my why moment. How did you get to understanding that that moment on the beach was your why moment or your purpose? Did you go through work? Did you see, like walk me through how you eventually came to that conclusion?
1: Yep, so you and I hang around all the time, right? We talk to people like us, we all talk about you should know your why, right? So I remember in about in my 30s or so early to mid 30s, I remember, okay, what is my why? You know, why am I the way I am? Because I always realize that I, I I appreciate every opportunity I have. And people always say, you're lucky. I believe luck is up, you know, is preparation meets opportunity, right? If you prepare yourself, you do all the things you're supposed to do. And when you opportunity come up, you take advantage of it. So I, I I have many businesses, you know, I didn't start as early as you. When you were 19 years old, you start with your first one, right? <laughs> um, well, you know, and then... You know, you did all the thing from there, you made all the money, and, and, and you started a bunch of businesses. I didn't start until I was later. So I remember thinking, kind of I wonder what my why is. And I remember thinking that I remember researching it, and I remember going, God, people said it's between the age of eight and fifteen. So I am thinking back and go, they tell you, people will tell me, well, because I want to make more money to take care of my family. Right? It's like peeling an onion, right? You go, okay, why? 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 I kept asking my why question all the way down to. They tell you when you know your why, Grant, you will know it. You get very emotional. I mean, mm. you start probably physically crying, right? They said, "Oh my God, that is my why," and that's how I knew it. I took that journey, and I remember thinking back and digging, digging for myself until I found it, and and that's when I realized that moment, a night on the beach, was my why.
0: That sounds just insanely powerful. I mean, you said you found it in your mid thirties. And for all of those listening, you, you came into the United States when you were 15, right? And then your brother came in and then you worked to put them through school. You did eventually get to reconnect
1: with your parents. Can you tell, can you tell us for yes. those that are listening to this, like what that was like? A few years after that, I sponsored my mom and my younger brother over, right? Um, because I have to prove that they, I can support them and they have to go on welfare. So from the age of about 16 until when my, my mom and my youngest brother came home, which, which is about seven years later, like when I was 23 years old. So I remember during that time, um, the, the, the Vietnamese community, people here abroad in the U.S. found out who I was. I was the firstborn of my dad. Now, my dad has an amazing story himself. So he's now considered kind of the Mel- Nelson Mandela of Vietnam because he was in prison for 22 years, right? Mm. And uh, the late Senator John McCain actually adopted my dad as a prisoner of conscience when he was still alive back in the day. Oh, wow. Well, back in the 80s and, uh, and all the way up to the 90s, um, the U.S. has an economic economic embargo on Vietnam. So every time they have a conversation with Vietnamese government, they actually bring my dad's name up. That's the only reason he didn't get killed. Okay? So the, 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 the last four years he was in prison, they actually isolated him because before that he was writing articles about dem- democracy and human rights. And he gets smuggled out, published all around the world to read. So they were, they were pretty threatened by my dad. And uh, the last four years, he was in isolation. Like, he, they wouldn't let him talk to anybody, read anything, because they, they want to shut him up. So that was in the early 90s. So I remember they finally negotiated the release of my dad, the U.S. and all the pressure around the country. But, but before then, uh, I was kind of became the poster child for human rights and prisoner of conscience. That's what they call the, 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 the p- political prisoners, right? Mm-hmm. So I would get flown by the organization to all over the country, to Canada, to meet with Congressman, uh, Senator in Washington, DC, all over the place on my dad's behalf. In of fact, I accepted several uh, awards on his behalf. The Kennedy Human Rights Award, I got to meet the Kennedy family, right? The, the, the Freedom Press Award. I would have to write all the speeches to speak on his behalf. A lot of pressure for someone between the age of, you know, sixteen and about twenty. <laughs> so that's what that's what I did back then. Um, and then, then finally, my mom, my, my brother came over, and then she took over to help out. So it wasn't until nineteen ninety three when I got to see my dad again. So I remember they finally said, "Okay, you, you can go, but you have he has to be exiled. You have to leave Vietnam because he become a symbol, right? So uh-huh. if he would be released out. There might be a revolution, all this other stuff." So now, remember, my dad doesn't know what's going on right now. It's been four years in isolation. So, of course, he turned it down. He said, well, no, I'm not leaving because he felt like he's become a symbol, right? So if he leave Vietnam, it would be like running away. So the Red Cross got to come back and visit my dad once a year to check on him, make sure he's alive, all this other stuff. So it was an upcoming trip they sent my mom with. They said, okay, you got to go back and convince him. We got him out. So we got to get him to leave, right? So I remember my dad, my mom came back and was telling him, my younger brother who I raised, Hugh. He's going to get married in a couple months. You get to come out, attend your son's wedding, you know, see everybody again. And he had a kidney disorder by then. It was pretty bad. His eyesight was almost blind because 22 some years, he hasn't upgraded his, his glasses, right? he can barely see. So, I mean, he was, he was pretty unhealthy at the time. A few more years, he might've been in big trouble. So my mom also had to tell him, there's this thing now called internet. Another <laughs> internet, just to come out. So this email thing that you can communicate with people back in Vietnam and still do your work. So he finally agreed to leave and came to America. So that's kind of their story. So they lived with us for a while. I, uh, my parents lived with me. And then about 20 some years ago, my mom and dad moved to Virginia. My mom just retired after 20 years working in the State Department. Her job was every two years to gets a new crop of diplomats to teach them the Vietnamese language and culture and they go back to Vietnam to work. So that, that's kind of... So my dad's been traveling, speaking, and writing books and that kind of stuff.
0: What was it like to get to reconnect with your dad for so long through such a traumatic, you know? You know, I was
1: eight, remember? So I probably have the most memories about my dad. Yeah. The younger brother, four and two, was very young. He has no, they have no memory of my, my, my dad at all. It's actually been a family struggle, to be honest with you. I'm being transparent here to share with the public, right? Yeah. My two younger brother had a lot of animosity and resentment towards my dad. Cause they felt like he he picked or chose something else than the family, right? So he essentially what he did, he had to sacrifice for the bigger, you know, the the, the, the bigger good, right? Yeah. And kind of sacrifice our family for it. So I've accepted it, um, but my my younger brothers have felt like you know they were abandoned, right? They don't know yeah. my dad at all. So for me to reconnect with my dad, uh, it was it was different. You know, uh, even lately, he's in early 80s now. He's still working hard. My mom gave him another year or two to be done with it because he's still working with the people back in Vietnam to all help them. Matter of fact, it was two years ago, it was my parents' 50th anniversary grant. Right? So the, the, uh, the plan was there's another election there every four years like here, except there's nothing like here when it comes to the election. The, the people in power actually nominate the next one they want to succeed them. right? So there's no voting there anything like that. Right. So the younger generation has been in contact with my dad, wanting him to help Vietnam grow and change again, to respect it the way he thinks, right? So they were hoping that the election would go well. We would do a 50th anniversary uh, celebration in Vietnam. All three kids get to go back with their grandkids to meet everybody, because he hadn't seen anybody in 40-some years, because he went straight from prison all the way out to America, right? His brothers, his cousin, anybody, yeah. So it didn't go as planned. So we ended up doing it in Minnesota. So um, you know, but we we got reconnected. I got to learn a lot about what he we went through. Uh, so it's it's been difficult uh, for him to really quit what he's doing, to, so yeah, to speak, I can to retire, <laughs> uh, because he's so passionate about you know uh, helping out. So he's been training because he's a big firm believer to in nonviolence. So anybody who learned history, or study about the Vietnam War there's this whole there's this one monk who actually poured gasoline on himself and burnt himself in protest of the war right that's actually one of his mentors so that's kind of person he is is like he, he believe in nonviolence so his whole model and theory is that by uh, with economy and all these other things you can change vietnam without having to have a war you know to 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 take over the, the country back from the communists
0: That sounds like an incredibly patient man <laughs> Oh man. What were some of the greatest lessons you, just a couple that you you you'd learned from your dad throughout that time and getting to reconnect with
1: him. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about what he went through, right. What he believed in, what he didn't want to give up. He never graduated from re-education camp, so to speak. Right. Yeah. So for me, one of the biggest thing I probably learned was, uh, you know, uh, it's better to do the right thing instead of what is easy or popular, yeah. you know? So it's not that easy, but you need to. So always do what is right and not what is easy or popular. So for me, that's always been something that I, I believe in. You know, uh, I'm almost transparent to a fault. i I rather tell the truth than try to, you know, not tell something because I just feel like, that, you know, I, it's a lot better and do what is right. So that's probably one of the biggest thing I learned. Uh, the other thing too is I, I learned that the, to to get, to to achieve your goal, whatever, you, you have to make a lot of sacrifice. Oh, yeah. You know, wow. In my dad's case, a lot of sacrifice. So for me then, I learned that, how much am I willing to sacrifice and to what? So one thing I think I learned that I can be better than my dad is to be more balanced in my life, right? Hmm. With the family, with the business, with fitness, with health, with you know, finances, the five pillars we talk about, right? Yeah. So that's one thing I learned from him is I like to be better in that, in that place.
0: So you talk about incredible mindsets and, and, and just... I mean the very nature of that story. I want to talk a little bit about your mom because I mean she would have had to have been unbelievably courageous to to go through and do some of the stuff. Yeah. What so were some, what, were, what were some of the the greatest lessons you learned from
1: her? Yeah. So of course, right, work two jobs, send your firstborn out, chances to my fifty percent. It was the eleventh day when I finally made a refugee camp. I got to send her a telegram that I made it. Can you imagine, wow. thirteen years old. I mean. I had kids I sent to a sleepover down the road, right? I'm constantly calling, texting. <laughs> okay. You know, 11 days, you don't know your kid live or die, right? That, that's pretty tough for her. That's right. The other thing is she fully totally dedicated her life to supporting my dad. Matter of fact, for almost a year to 18 months, they, they also arrest, arrested my mom. Because at the time, my youngest brother was the only one left. They tried to use her to break my dad. They say, hey, you say this, this will let you out because we already got your wife too only one kid left is by himself, you know? So the thing that she has to endure, I mean, wow. no one should have to go through. it.
0: How have you been able, or have you, I mean, have you been able to take some of these life lessons and really kind of package them up in a way? Cause you're one of the fastest growing real estate brokerages in Minnesota, right? You've, got, you've excellent success, amazing success. What lessons have you been able to take and and turn around and start teaching other people to help them kind of actionalize their dreams, connect with their why, learn how to okay. suffer and sacrifice? I mean, for their goals, how how is that kind of transitioned? You know, uh, into business.
1: Yeah, it's a uh, I mean. Great My mindset is so powerful that people don't realize, right? Because whatever you think, you know, I'll start with this. According to the National Science Foundation, on an average, we have like fifty to sixty thousand thoughts a day. That's a lot. You don't realize, right? Because most of it's subconscious and they say that 95% of your thoughts are repeated, which means if you have negative thoughts, you repeated it 95% of the time until it becomes so negative that your actions and your thought and your, you know, everything you do, based out of it. So when I learned that, I wanted to be more positive, but with that being said, um, human, there's three ways we learn as humans. Okay? One is considered the easiest way to learn, Grant, is by imitation, right? If, if you're doing something well, I'm not gonna reinvent the wheel, I'm gonna copy you, so that I'll just do it. It's the easiest way to learn by imitation. Matter of fact, even though in school it's called cheating in life, it's called sharing, right? <laughs> that, that's <laughs> what we, you and I do with a lot of people. We network yeah. and learning. The second way we learn is considered the hardest way to learn is by experience. For example, what I went through, what you went through with your gutter business, you know, with your roofing business, you know, all the success we have and then boom, it's gone. Right? So that's the hardest way to learn is the school hard knock to go through by it. However, you can also learn through other people's experience. You don't have to go through yourself. Like, I would never wish anyone to go through what I went through just alone, right? Which leads to the third way is considered the most noble is by reflection, okay? and What we imitate, what we experience, what we learn from others, reflect on all of it for yourself. One thing I think in America we lack uh, as people is critical thinking. There's so much information out there coming at us. Which one do you believe in? Well, none. Do it yourself. Take all the information put in and then and, through and, and critical thinking and reflection and, and come up with your own, right? Of what is right, what is wrong. But, but for me, my goal every day is to be the better version of myself from yesterday. Mm. okay? I'm not going to try to be better than Grant, better than anybody else, because you know, right? There's always someone better than you. And there's always someone worse off than you, no matter what. Golf, you know, business, whatever it is, mm. which is the true definition of being average. The best of the worst and the worst of the best, right? <laughs> so I don't want to feel average. So my goal is just to be better than myself from, from, from yesterday. So my routine I have every night before I go to bed. Now, first of all, you know me. A lot of people know me. <clears throat> I love to grow and learn, but I hate to read because I'm a idea I want to get the information really fast, right? <laughs> so, so, uh, so But I, I don't have a lot of patience, so I, I, I hate to read before. So every night before I go to bed, I always reflect, right? Because that's my reflection time. And some people might be the journal for me is my calendar. So literally, if you don't get on my calendar, it didn't happen that day. So I used to look at my calendar, Grant, and I would say, hey, how did my day go? I might look back tonight and go, hey, how did my session with Grant go? Could I have done a better job? Could I have said this differently, right? That's how I think. That's how I learn. And then I ask myself that same question every night, and I have to be honest with myself. Did I learn something new today? If I did not, most days I did not. I read 15 to 20 minutes a day because I have a couple of books next to my bed. That's how I, I tell myself to read because it's my goal, it's my why to, to be better version of myself. So once you do that, you start growing and everything will follow, right? Your business, your personal life, your financial life, your health, all this other stuff because it starts with your mindset. So if people remember that there's three ways we learn and be okay to learn either or all three of those ways and then and then just have a goal to grow and do better and help others around you grow.
0: Have you ever, have you developed kind of like, well, what is your system? Like, I feel like we all have a system that makes us tick sure. and makes it operate for me. You know, I, I do the gratitude stuff. And um, but one of the things I've found that makes me move faster than anything is something I call a regret list. Yep. And uh, when I write out, you know, my major commitments for what I want to accomplish I go through and I live in some pain about, man, what am I going to regret if, if I don't get to this point? And I found that sometimes people that I you know, surround myself with that kind of grow up not necessarily in traumatic ways, especially you know, compared to you, but in really tough situations, they're almost more so fueled by pain than they are by pleasure. Uh, have, you, have you ever paid attention? I mean, do you, have you, do you feel like you have a, a system that, that really drives you one way or another?
1: Yeah, so like in a big 30,000 foot view, right? My, I call it the map to success. So I'm a big acronym guy, right? So map, M-A-P. For me, map, M is for mindset, right? Which is what we talk about, right? If you have the right mindset, everything will happen, which leads to action, which is A. So action comes in everything, your habit, you know, what you do, all this other thing. And then P is purpose. Without purpose, you won't keep going. So for me, that's always me reminding myself of the math of success, uh, which leads to the other acronym that that Mike and I have is called LIFE, right? This is what life is all about. So life is learn, implement, fail, evolve. So we're gonna learn, you and I learn stuff and we go try, right? We implement it. And we should be realizing that most of the time we will fail because we don't succeed every time. But because we fail, that's how we evolve which is kind of the circle of life. So I'm more like on the big schema thing. That's kind of my process. So for me, I'm all about the growth mindset. So uh, I always say that build a plane while you're flying it. That's kind of my life, right? I'll dive in and do anything. I don't wait till I have a perfect plan. I just go do it and I'll make adjustment as I go. And, uh, and so let's say if I didn't, we want to get to a thousand agents by the end of this year, right? Let's say by the end of this year, we only got 930. Instead of being disappointed, my way of thinking would be, all right, What could I have learned from this so that I can get to a thousand next year faster? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my process system. But in speaking of process system in a people business, that's what you and I do, right? We don't show up to work right? and we turn on the flip switch to go to work, right? You are who you are as a person. So for me, whether it's personal business, 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 systems run business, people run system. I am all about system process. That's how I live my life. Right. Um, even all the way down to the way I hang my clothes. You know, I got my long sleeve, my short sleeve, I got my dark to my wife, you know, I got my work clothes and my golf clothes and then my my, my worn-out clothes. Even my dishwasher, everyone who knows clothes to me know my dishwasher story. My wife would shake her head and walk away, but when she loaded the dishwasher with my kids, I go back and reload them. But I can get <laughs> 50% more efficiently in the dishwasher. If I face them correctly, certain way I get more glasses in, more plates in, different size, face them right so they're clean. I'm all about system process all the time, and then, and then I surround myself with people who are better than me in everything. You know, I have Mike here. I have many people here. I have you here. You know, I surround myself with people who are better than me.
0: Do you feel like your your experience growing up really prepared you to have that? Um you know, I'm just going to jump off a cliff and build a plane on the way down type mindset. Cause I mean, you got to, you got to think that your fight or flight responses are pretty good. Cause you really didn't have a choice. Like you're going to have to fight like crazy uh, to, to get to where you are. Do you feel like that has translated in your life?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh-huh.
1: More than anything. Cause I, I talk about the people business, which is what I've been in for 29 years. Right. But even from the time I step off the boat, right. I'm thrown into 40,000 of people I don't know about. So one thing I tell people all the time is if you're in real estate or you whatever business you're in, real estate IQ, business IQ, whatever it is, that's great. But most successful people have high EQ. Matter of fact, 90% of all successful people score high on EQ score, right? Because in the people business, you have to have better emotional intelligence. That's probably my superpower. I'm, I'm really good with, with EQ. I relate to people really well. You know, I'm very self-aware. I can self-manage, you know, social awareness and relationship management. All of those I practice all the time. So for me, when I do read, uh, I am focused on certain area. One is I'm all about mindset. Okay? I read stuff about mindset. I read stuff about people and communication. And I read stuff about business, how to grow and scale. So for me, those are like the three go-to that I go to all the time. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I think that what most people have struggled with, by the way, I think success is the biggest enemy of growth. You've worked with many people, right? When they get to a certain point for me in my space in real estate, when you start doing a lot of transaction and making good money, you start feeling comfortable and you stop growing. And you think, hey, I'm where I'm at. The biggest, you know, enemy of growth. So that's what most people struggle with. So when I get to talk to people, I always tell them, hey, for you to grow again, you probably don't know your why. If you know your why, you never stop growing.
0: Yeah. You fall in love with the process so much more when you're just deeply connected to why it is that you're doing. Because you just want to get bigger and bigger, or be better and better, or do more and more. And there's a lot of profound effects, um, you know, for what happens. Because when you're sitting there thinking about it, you know, you're getting connected to make sure that people don't suffer the way that you had to suffer. Um, you know, you could get get nice and comfortable at eight o'clock at night, sit on the couch, and then realize, like, oh crap, you know, there's more out there tomorrow that we got to go talk to. There's more yeah. out there we got to connect to. It.
1: But, but you know, right, I don't wish anybody had to go through what I do, but just because you, you grew up and you didn't have to go through hardship, the cool thing is to leverage other people's experience that I went through, you went through, right? Like I said, the three way you learn, because if you can change your, what I call your reference point, mm-hmm. okay, if you see someone, you should, you should have appreciation for what you have versus what you don't have, because a lot of people don't have what you have, you know, once you get to that point, then you start having the abundance mentality versus the scarcity mentality.
0: What do you feel like, you know, through your life experience, I mean, and and as many people as you've worked with, what makes up a good leader? How does somebody become, I I get, you know, some of the things that I can do to have a great mindset. What makes a good leader in your opinion?
1: Yes. So there's a difference, as you know, a lot of us kind of know, right? The difference between a manager and a leader, right? A manager manages results. Like they're there to manage this is working so you can achieve this goal, that goal. A leader inspires people. To reach those goals. Mm. So that's the difference between the two. Most companies need both because without someone to manage and hold people accountable, right? You can't just inspire, inspire, and they're lazy, they don't do anything. Right. So you know, that's one thing that's good for Mike and I together. He could be leading, I could be managing, or he could be managing, I could be leading. One cool thing to feed off each, each other. But I think great leaders that I learn from, I read book and I see out there, including you, right, is to constantly inspire people to be better and to be there and to help them, to show them. Unconditionally, without judgment. I think that's probably the biggest thing, because when people don't want to come to you if they feel like they let you down or you know or they disappoint you, uh, you -hmm. know. So when people fail, I want to let them know, okay, it's okay. We don't want you to make this mistake again. So let's learn how do we prevent it from next time. And and for me, most of the time as a leader, when people come to me and said so and so screwed up, we need to let them go. My first question always is, did we do everything we could have done? Did we give them the right training? Do we have the right process system? To prevent this from happening right and is this the first time because that, that, that's a learning opportunity so those are the things that i do as a leader to constantly assessing everybody doing a SWOT analysis on myself all the time What my mm. strike what my weakness opportunity threat and i do that in every situation and i never make a knee-jerk reaction if i have to make a quick decision i will but most of the time i want to make sure i have all the information before i make decisions so i ask a lot of questions do
0: you, do you intentionally give yourself time before you force yourself to make a decision? Do you, do you say, Absolutely.
1: Like, do you have rules so, for that? Yep. Uh, even my wife and I, right. We have again an argument. We always said, Hey, let's take a deep breath to do whatever. Right. And, and come back and figure it out. But for me, I always acknowledge you don't want to blow people off. Right. Hey, right. I hear that. Um, I'd like to get back to you about three o'clock today and we can talk more about it, which then gave me time. To figure out what's going on. I might need more information, but now they know that I acknowledge what's going on, and we have a time to try to solve it. So unless I'm put on the spot to solve right now, then I have to make a decision based on the information I have in front of me, right? But the better information we can make is, is, is the one that, uh, the more information. However, if you're forced to make a decision on the spot, I always ask myself these two questions. One is, what's the worst that could happen if I don't do this? Mm. And what's the worst that could happen if I do do this? And then I wait out which is the
0: best of the two. Mm, I love it. I, I noticed you said something when we were talking about leadership, you said "As somebody that can inspire. And I, I love the way that you said that because we live in a society right now that isn't doing a lot of inspiring. It's a lot of commanding or demanding. And it, it, just in your opinion, I mean, how do you see those two leadership styles playing out?
1: it's harder when you try to inspire somebody because the people you're trying to inspire have to be open minded to be inspired right whereas uh-huh. the other style is managing people you 're pushing them to do something so i, I feel like when it's uh, uh when it's the carrot or the stick right uh, the stick is always managing people because you got to whip them in the shape and get them to do whatever, whereas the carrots where you inspire them to do something to to get whatever so it's harder and harder to inspire people, I believe. That's why leaders out there are, are not as, you know, there's not as many good leaders as they used to be, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the cool thing is like something here, Mike and I do a lot is, we have a rule that we all take the high road. Of course we recruit against a competition, right? But we never put them down. We just show why we're better fit or aligned for the agent to come and join us. Not because we're better than them, we're just better fit, right? So we want to inspire them to do something more than what they have now. And this is how we help them. Yeah. So you almost have to, to inspire people now, you almost have to kind of give them more example, like give them more more things to think about to change their mind, you know, before you have to go and crack a whip on them.
0: What, what is, advice would you give to somebody that, that maybe hearing that it's like, Oh, I know, but I just can't get anybody to listen to me or, you know, my kids won't do this or, you know, this, that, the other thing, there's a difference I think between command relationship and then the, the inspirational relationship. And I feel like I haven't answered that question, but what would you advise somebody? It's like, Oh, I just, I can't get people to listen to me or, what yeah. should I do? How, how can I be more inspirational? How can I be more of a leader that just inspires somebody to want to take an action instead of commanding that, you know, you're going to do this because I said so?
1: Yeah, so a couple of things come to mind. Number one is the communication. At the end of the day, I don't care if you have the greatest idea, whatever it is, right? If you can't communicate it correctly, people won't listen to you or be open-minded, which lead to, I call it the platinum rule. And you know about the golden rule, right? Do it to others as you want to be done into you. The platinum rule is to do it to others as they want to be done to them not what you want to be. So on the communication uh, uh, you know, area is learning about their style of communication. Uh, yes. So we all know about the different language, right? different way you communicate, some people more visual, some more verbal, you know, all these other things. So that's why I'm very, very uh, obsessed with learning to be a better communicator. And it's not just the word we say, right? They say that's only 7% of communication. The other thing is the tone and your body language. So this is why you and I have face-to-face or Zoom, right? Because you can see how we talk and people can sense it, they can trust you. So if, they, if you can find a, a better way to communicate with everybody, which is different for everybody, if they trust you, they will listen to you more. That's number one. The other thing too is bring in other leaders to help you. Because you said kids, right? We all have kids. How many times my kids came home from hanging out with their friends and their parents said something they thought was freaking amazing idea I'm like, that's the same thing I've been telling you for 10 years, right? <laughs> Until someone else say what you say a lot of times, you, you know, you're not going to say credibility. So because of that, a lot of leaders like yourself and me, we get people all the time that said, hey, I'll invite you to come to my group to speak. And we used to say the same thing to, to the other group, right? But now all of a sudden, oh, an kind moment, of aha moment. You know? yeah. So uh, at the end of the day, I think if you can uh, effectively communicate with people, that will be more open to receiving the message. Okay. Yeah. And then, and, or find ways to bring in other way to help you get that message across.
0: I think communication solves mostly all problems. I mean, if you can learn how to be a really good communicator, uh, you know, just, it may take studying, may take time, may take patience, uh, may take some grace, it may take, you know, all of the different things. But if the communication is such an important, important, important thing. And if I would, I would almost argue it's not, it's everything. I mean, we're seeing it in our society today where we just unfortunately gone down this hole where we have an inability to communicate with each other. And some of the platforms that exist don't necessarily uh, inspire us to communicate with each other. They, the, the way that algorithms work in social media, they can maybe even unintentionally continually divide us because we get this through this fishbowl effect where our ideas, uh, based on what we search and what we speak and what we talk and how we react and interact, just continually create an experience for us where we're only surrounded by people like us. And that's, uh, you know, it's, it's not good because we're losing an ability to communicate with each other and conflict resolution and leadership and these other types of things. It's just stuff that seems to be disappearing more and more because, people won't learn how to communicate with each other there again, goes back to the difference between demand relationship versus an inspirational type of relationship. You've got to work on this. We're in a people
1: business. So I would say that uh, uh, technology will never replace us, but it is changing the way we do business. So we should be leveraging technology and process system for opportunity, but to nurture and build deep relationship, you still have to pick up the phone and meet with the people, right? You have to communicate Many times I'll, I'll be texting with people and I'm like, I'm picking up the phone because this is not, we're not getting the same, we're not communicating because the thing I'm texting and texting back is not saying what I'm trying to say at all. Yeah. So, you know, so you see a lot of people, especially in the real estate space, hey, this, you know, AI technology, doing all this stuff, all this nurturing, you know, leads. days you still got to pick up the phone to take it to the next level or to yeah. meet the people or to do whatever. And we, you said it as human, Right. That's why we're different than animal. the way we communicate. And you don't learn how to communicate in the people business. You're going to struggle no matter you know, how good you are and what you do, because I don't care how the best product you have, the best service you have. You don't know how to communicate that. No one's going to want to work with you anywhere.
0: A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Is there a way, going back to talking a little bit about fight or flight responses, is there a way that you can, that you have found that you can build that muscle? What can you do for yourself to continually, because in entrepreneurship, owning a business, fitness, relationships, money, it's this constant, uh, what seems like opportunity to fight or flight. From your perspective, I mean, a man that I have great respect for, and especially hearing your story multiple times, it's just, obviously you have a a little bit of expertise, maybe (laughs) just by circumstance. What are some ways that I can build that muscle? How How can I, you know, stay in the fight? What can I do?
1: You know, it's almost so simple, it's going to sound really crazy, right? But most of it starts with your breathing. So when I grew up as a young uh, teenager, my uncle, who's my dad's cousin, was the grandmaster of the Vietnamese Kung Fu brand called Vo Vina. Okay? So, of course, me as a boy, want to learn how to fight, right? And my uncle at the time told me, you don't have the temperament. I'm going to teach you to fight because you're probably going to go fight people versus defend, right? <laughs> so he said, What I'm going to do is I'll teach you how to breathe. So I'm like, oh, breathing, come on, you know, that's no fun. But I did learn anyway. So I don't realize it, but now it's really be the foundation of how I am. So just the way you breathe and control your breathing. So what I have learned through books and and other people, coaching and people like you to learn from too, is at the end of the day, for me, uh, scientifically even, all senses in our body, touch, feel, whatever, send an electrical signal up, uh, you know, back of our neck all the way up to our cortex, right? That's where... Feelings are created. And when you have feelings, that's what it is. It's just created. What happened is people don't wait until you get to your frontal cortex, which is where this decisions made. So a lot of times we react as soon as we have a feeling. But we have to be recognized, which is why I talk about the EQ, the four things. One is self-aware, right? Once you're self-aware, that's what's going on, you can self-manage, which is step number two. So when you know that the feelings are there, this is why. For me especially, married guys, people in relationship, you never tell your spouse or significant other, don't feel that way, you're wrong. Your feeling's never wrong. How you react could be wrong or right, right? Mm -hmm. Feeling's never wrong because that's what it is. You can't fight your feeling because of all of the things that we experienced in the past. So for me, realizing that, you want to have this delay reaction to think through it. So for me, without realizing it, I do it now. I take a deep breath which scientifically also allows you to have more oxygen to your brain, which will give you better time, number one, to pause your reaction, number two, to be smarter at what you're thinking, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of scientific stuff you don't realize how breathing will help you. So for me, I realize that. I know that. So I would take a deep breath. Sometimes I don't realize I'm not doing it because my wife would say, all right, what's wrong? Because I probably have like, (laughs) all right, what's wrong? Like, oh, never mind. I was thinking about whatever. You know, so she knows that about me. But for me, then I would usually then ask, hey, is it okay if I get back to you about this? Because I don't know how to respond at that time, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm self-managing myself because I know if I react right now, it might not be the right thing. I might say the wrong thing. I might not do the right thing. So for for, for us, the EQ part is so, so, so important for you to, to to manage decisions we have to make all the time. All the time. we demand to make so many decisions so fast. It's not even funny, right? Also, if I make the wrong decision, don't, 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 you know, if you're a leader, well, most of us in the leadership role, don't be afraid to be to admit it. Hey, sorry, I made the wrong decision. This is how we're going to fix it and then move yeah. forward.
0: Has vulnerability helped you guys grow business? I mean, has it helped you guys develop better, you know, you work with people to help them develop their mindset and become better leaders? Because each, each agent in your brokerage is their own business owner, right? So they're all... You know, right. kind of working on the same things they got to be good leaders has, has that helped you do that
1: yes in our model we treat every agent as a ceo of their company we have what we call a plug and play partnership model right so as their partner i don't care if it's their life partner business partner you work with people you like and trust right yeah. so to build trust and likability you have to be authentic and you have to be transparent so being vulnerable is one of those and in fact that's what they teach you to be a, a, a really good leader right is to be vulnerable because when you're vulnerable with people, they trust you and they'll be vulnerable back with you to allow you to inspire and lead them. So that's why we built a we model flying. Our company, people know that. Man, we're like the early adopter on everything. You know, we're gonna definitely try. We'll be your guy. Grant, you call me say I got this thing new. I'm like, I'm in, man. You know, I'll, <laughs> I'll go try it. So that, that's probably the biggest thing is, uh, you know, is to have that mindset. But, uh, you know, to to, to but also vulnerability allowed you to be authentic to people, which people will like you and trust you because otherwise they always feel like, man, this person is way up there above me. I, I can't relate to that person. Right. Cause as a leader, a lot of times they feel like you're on a pedestal and mm-hmm. they get 15 minutes and 30 minutes. You are like, Oh my God, this is so awesome. How, how do I still get so lucky to meet with you? And then realize, wow, th- he's a person too. I can yeah. relate to this because I trust him. Whatever he tells me, I'm probably going to do it.
0: Yeah. That's really powerful. Man, this has been an incredible conversation. I hate to I hate to wind it down and make it in, but I don't want to respect your time. Uh, just so much wisdom in this interview. Your story is so inspirational and uh, I've learned so much just in this hour with you. I know for a fact uh, that the people listening to this are are going to do so as well. I cannot tell you how much we appreciate it. There's so much wisdom in your story, brother. I appreciate you. Mad respect for you and uh, all that you're doing in Minnesota. Uh, you've lived an incredible life and done some incredible things, and I can't—I uh, just can't tell you how much I appreciate you spending some more time with me and helping me learn more about myself uh, through through your experience. And uh, I know it's going to touch some hearts and, and inspire other people to be better. What's a what's a great way for somebody to connect with you if they want to learn more about you?
1: Yeah, so people just Google me, Long Dota, Minnesota. You know, uh, social media, whatever it might be. And the last thing I like to share, if you don't mind, you know, I think at the Go end of the it. day. Um, it's not where we come from because I'm the story of that, right? It doesn't matter where you come from, a 13-year-old boy by himself, it's where you're going. And that has to take with mindset, which leads to, I believe, we all have a choice. We all have a choice where we want to go. And it's called a the choice theory. There's actually a book about it that I read, right? There's, there's, they say there's three things that you can do. You have, you have decisions to make. You have three choices on everything you come across in your life. One is you can choose to do nothing right? Well, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, right? So if you like what you're doing, don't make any changes, okay? The second choice you have is to change the way you think, because once you think something, everything seems to be different, right? The third choice is to change what you do, like what you do when when you want to make that decision. I added the fourth one, I believe, most successful people like yourself, me, and other people out there. The fourth choice is to to change what you think and also change what you do Mm -hmm. together, that they go hand in hand. So I encourage all you listeners out there, no matter where you are today, where you came from, whatever your background experience is, make a choice. And you have four choices to make. Make a choice today and go from there.
0: Ah oh, man, I absolutely love it. I love it, I love it. You guys make your choices, make them wisely and make sure you reach out and connect with Long, Dude. your story. I just love it. I love it. I can't love it enough. We'll see you guys on the next episode and we'll see you again soon, Long.
1: Good to have you. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Words of Wisdom. This is a show designed to inspire you to become a better leader so that you can win in all areas of your life. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. Please rate and review this episode on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget, go off and share your favorite words of wisdom from today's show.